Welcome to another episode of Trashy Divorces. We're back. Trashy D. This week. I'm so excited to tell these stories this week. Me too. These were really fun to research. Very nostalgia heavy. We're going to try to get a bunch of stuff on the website so that you, you too can enjoy our nostalgia. That's for sure. This week, You're My Best Friend. The song, originally Queen, mm-hmm. included on their Night at the Opera album from 1975. The song reached number seven on the UK singles chart, number 16 on the US Billboard Hot 100. But it perfectly epitomized these two gals. Superstars. Superstars. We have the trashy divorces of Penny Marshall and Carrie Fisher. They're actually the heartwarming divorces of they, both. Yeah, it's, that's we're, really we're true. slouching on the trashy part this week. So we came across the idea for this episode many moons ago. Back when we covered John McEnroe and Tatum O'Neill, right, John McEnroe mentioned in his biography that he attended Penny Marshall's birthday party and that because she and Carrie Fisher had, he said the same birthday, but they're like a few days apart, that each year they would alternate. Like Who Pe- gave the party for right, each Penny other. Penny would throw Carrie a party and the next year Carrie would throw Penny a party. But it was a joint birthday party that they had every year that was apparently quite a thing in Hollywood every year, every October. So that is how we got here, because these are two fabulous women who are just, I mean, we love them and they had fascinating lives. We've had this episode planned for many months going out this week for our birthday gals. Mm -hmm. They did celebrate their birthdays together. They legit kindred spirits, BFFs, a testament to true friendship. Penny Marshall and Carrie Fisher are introduced in the late 70s. They're introduced by Paul Simon and Lorne Michael. Lorne Michael's like, I think you two would really hit it off. Right. And and indeed they did. And sure enough, they do. They're BFFs. Their first official hang session revolves around Carrie packing for a trip to the Caribbean where Penny is listening to her bitch about whether she was able to keep up with Paul. <laughs> Starting in 1981, mm-hmm. they do begin celebrating their birthdays together. In a blowout party every year. So guests are given a very discreet phone call with the date and time. No, like, paper invitations are ever sent out. Gotcha, Attended by notables Robin Williams, Jack Nicholson, Angelica Houston, later Nicole Kidman, Ben Affleck. Like, this is the hot ticket party of the year. And apparently John McEnroe during the height of his fame. Johnny Mac. Which is Jack Nicholson, I think. Don't right, ever change, right. Johnny he's, Mac. Yeah, he's wandering around this party and Jack Nicholson just walks up to him. Don't ever change, Johnny Mac. Well, Jack Nicholson has nicknames for everyone everyone that are hilarious. So like 20 years after their inaugural birthday bash, they decide to stop the parties because it became too overwhelming to deal with all of the mayhem and the planning. So Penny says it was too much and too expensive when you see Shaquille O'Neal and Salman Rushdie waiting for their cars at the end of your driveway, you know things are out of control. That's entirely true. <laughs> There's a fantastic little heartwarming I love this. friendship thing. Mm-hmm. Penny Marshall, in her 2012 book, after she gives the dedication to her family, dedicates to Carrie Fisher and says, I want to thank Carrie Fisher, my friend and partner in crime, for more than 30 years. We've lasted longer than all of our marriages combined. Our crazy lives have meshed perfectly. We've always said it was because we never liked the same drugs or men, but I know there's more to it. Hell yeah. It's... Hell yeah. So this week is a testament to 
women's friendship Mm -hmm. under the guise of heartwarming and trashy divorces. Sure, sure. And just a quick shout out to the Best Forever's podcast by our friend Elisa Lucas. Um, We actually got to meet her in person last week and, and it was as heartwarming as I expected. I guess we should talk about Patreon. We should. Let's go ahead, talk about Patreon, and then we'll start the ep. This week, we had some really good stories. You on Trashy Politics. Yeah, so billionaire Peter Thiel was responsible for taking down the gossip site Gawker.com, and we got into it. But also doing this project, doing Trashy Divorces, I have realized how... Much Gawker needs. Yeah, how, how much we need... Sites like Gawker, how much we need, like, the places that'll skimp a little on, like, journalistic ethics to actually get at the truth of things. That's it. That was a good story. Yeah, yeah. So that was a little First Amendment nightmare. On Um, our... You have... On our continuing series... Side piece. Side piece. I covered the 26-year-long side piece affair of Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. I was so surprised by that story. It was a good story. I was so... I did not, it, yeah, changed my view. We did our regular kitchen sink trash tidbits on mm-hmm. Thursday as well. Yep. And we have a whole bunch of new patrons to welcome we to Team Trash Candy. Do. Thank we you, do. everybody, for joining. Yeah, I will kick off the gratitude train with uh, Lisa R., Paris A., Meredith E., Kira H., Angela G., Sandra, Ashley D, Rebecca H, Charlotte, Lauren M, Shiana D, Rachel FB, Rob M, Sandra HJ, Jessica, Karen G, Rachel E, Taylor H, Aaron, Rachel Van G, Aaron S, Barbara, Megan L, Sarah M, Robin S, and Kristen. Thank you everybody for joining us on Patreon. We are so overwhelmingly grateful. For your support, we hope you are having a great time on Team Trash Candy. We have one other super fun thing. Sure, we have a very special birthday shout out from a patron. A happy birthday, Annan from Cray Cray Tay Tay. Happy Halloween birthday, Annan. Your Cray Cray Tay Tay friend is a testament to VFFs. I yep. love it all. It all fits with this week. Yep. It, yeah, true story. All right. I think that may be it for, for housekeeping. You ready to tell the heartwarming divorce of Penny Marshall? Holy cats, I am. Let's go, go, go. Let's go. Hey, Stacy. Hey, Alicia. I'm so excited about listening to your story today. Well, my story... I love Penny Marshall. Yeah, my story is like definitely not trashy. So this week on Sweet Tender Divorces, (laughs) I have... (laughs) I have Penny Marshall. Yeah, she's been she was divorced twice. And we're gonna talk about it. Let's do it. Okay, so a little background. I really I love Penny Marshall. I Let love me just, Penny Marshall yeah. too. So she was born Carol Penny Marshall. Carol for Carol Lombard, her mom's favorite oh, actress. Really? Penny, because her older sister, family lived in the Bronx, was saving pennies to buy a horse, which her mother knew was never going to happen in the Bronx. But you can still save your pennies, kid. And so as sort yeah, some sort of consolation, like Okay, but your sister is Penny. Aww. Penny Marshall was born October 15th, 1943, to an Italian-American dad who made industrial films, which must have been a trip back then. Really? I'm thinking keeping all your fingers intact on the factory floor was probably one of his big hits. (laughs) Yowza. (laughs) Surviving the munitions plant. (laughs) 
know. Crazy. <laughs> Dad's family name had been Mascarelli, but he changed it to Marshall before she was born. And so I thought that was really interesting and did a little rabbit hole that if you'll allow me to rabbit away. So another thing that happens in October, aside from the birthday of our two subjects this week, Columbus Day. Yeah. Which is a controversial holiday these days. Indigenous Peoples Day. It turns out it began as a controversial holiday, too. Really? I don't so, know the story. Tell me. It's a, it, I didn't either. This blew my mind. So, you know, fact attack coming. American history fact attack. So, like, you know, American racism is not just for black people or, like, Chinese Americans or, you know, like, there are really specific things that we can point to. But it was really widespread. Like, whiteness as a thing is something that has expanded over time. And it did not used to include people like Irish people or Italian people. Right. Irish need not apply. Right. Right. So this was, like, common and accepted even by major institutions like the New York Times back in the 19th century. So when Italian immigrants came to the country through the South, it was typically through the port of New Orleans, which I guess was the biggest, you know, like, I don't think Savannah was much of anything at the time. Okay. Anyway, so after the Civil War, which obviously emancipated all that free labor that, you know, Southern planters had been relying on, Italian immigrants were warmly embraced for a while. And that lasted exactly as long as they didn't complain about their wages or working conditions. Oh, no. So, you know, Italian communities grew up in New Orleans. They maintained the Italian language, ate Italian food, practiced Italian culture. Uh, I guess they would have been Catholic, which would have fit in with, you know, Louisiana is a pretty Catholic state anyway. Right. Well, I mean, New Orleans is such a gumbo of all different sorts of mixes. Which is sort of why this story surprised me so very much. When, you know, when these new Italian immigrants would open businesses, they catered to Italians and also to African-Americans. Like, they they weren't walking in super racist. They were just trying to get by. And so they had, and so, like, the communities integrated, like, Italian and African-American people would marry, have kids. Like, anyway, really dangerous thing to do in the South at the time yeah. if you are, like, not black. So obviously the Klan and other just horrible people sort of eventually took notice of the Italian community. Really? In 1890, I know, I'm getting back to Penny Marshall, I swear to God, but in 1890, the police chief of New Orleans, who had, I think, coincidentally been feuding with some Italian business owners, was murdered. Oh. Like, very bad. The city responds by rounding up 19 Italians on extremely flimsy evidence and took them to trial, where they were either acquitted or granted mistrials. A white mob forms and goes and grabs 11 of these people and lynches them what in new orleans yeah yeah and this was this was international news oh my i've never heard this story nope the new york times covered both the sheriff's death and the later lynching in a very favorable like oh these italians deserved it i mean just oh my this is horrifying yeah it's a pretty vile moment this was so heinous that the government of italy cut off diplomatic relations with the united states so there were rumors and fears that war was coming. Oh, my God. I mean, it was this was a huge, huge deal that dragged on for more than a year. And eventually, President Benjamin Harrison, against Congress's wishes, like Congress was accusing him of usurping the power of the purse and, you know, these goddamn Italians. And like, anyway, he agrees to pay $25,000 to the families of the victims. And he announces that the U.S. would have a one-time <laughs> celebration of... 
Italian Christopher Columbus, Columbus Day. on the 400th anniversary of his landing in America. So 1892 was when that happened. And apparently, you know, this is sort of Italians were able to sort of use the Christopher Columbus story to, I don't know, help their noble, rep. Yeah, to yeah. bring in some nobility. Look, America's super racist and always has been. Okay. These uh, actions resolve the diplomatic problem more or less. One time celebration. Which. To get us out of war. Right. To prevent a war. Okay. Uh huh. This is fascinating. Sure. Uh, so Penny Marshall's father, you know, Mascarelli, is born into an Italian family in New York City in 1906. So a little after this. But in 1920, U.S. immigration law was rewritten to restrict various ethnicities from entering the country, including Italians. Really? So, like, the racism was there. Anyway, so this is how Their she became Their last name has changed to Marshall. Marshall. Yeah. I know that was a lot of detour, but I was I like, had no idea yeah, about any of that. There's a whole, we'll have a link. There's a Wikipedia page for the, I think it's March 14th, 1891, lynching in New Orleans. Yeah, it's apparently really well known in Italy. And even as somebody who's into history and Southern history, I'd never heard of it. Just incredible. I'm learned this podcast is, you know what? Learn something new all the time around here. Sorry for that five minutes, but we're all smarter now. Okay. So Anthony (laughs) Mascarelli became Anthony Marshall, and he and his wife, dance teacher Marjorie, from good Northern European stock, of course, raised their three children in the Bronx. This is son Gary Marshall. You may have heard of him. Daughters Ronnie and Penny Marshall. Okay. All three children belonged to different churches. Really? Because Marjorie's dance school was in the basement of the building where they lived, and they needed occasionally to borrow a hall to hold a recital. And so the the parents were not religious. The children were not religious, but they installed all of the kids at different churches around town so they so could So she'd always out have a hall. place to... Marjorie sounds like a fucking genius. Genius. Total That's amazing. <laughs> no, and Penny talks about like this basement dance studio where mom would like sit at the piano and smoke cigarettes. <laughs> Taught tap dance. Yeah. Okay. I love it. Uh, also, this apartment building in the Bronx where they grew up, coincidentally, was the childhood home of Neil Simon, who wrote The Odd Couple, which would right. end up making Penny Marshall's career. Also, Calvin Klein and Ralph Lauren. You're kidding. Ralph Lauren. Ralph Lauren. And Calvin Klein grew up together in the same fucking Well, building? I don't know. I mean, Neil Simon's 20 years older yeah. than Penny Marshall. Wow, like, what a legacy. Yeah, it's uh, this building. the concourse, uh, I think. Anyway, it's a very, it, I think it's a huge residential apartment block. Um, Rob Reiner actually grew up kind of across the street. They never met, but Penny Marshall re- recalled later that she saw Carl Reiner in a store one time, and he was the most famous guy in the neighborhood. And she was just, like, stunned as a child. How crazy. Mm-hmm. After high school, Penny wanted to get away from New York and probably her, you know, crazy parents <laughs> sending her to church so she could Tired rent, of going rent to the, the hall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Penny heads to the University of New Mexico and begins to study math and psychology. Okay. Everything was going fine until, well, let me let Penny explain what happened. This is from a 2012 Newsweek essay. This is possibly also from her memoir that came out the same year. Quote, I moved from the Bronx to go to college. My mother thought New Mexico was near New York, New Jersey, New Hampshire, and New England. She had no idea about geography. So I ended up at college in New Mexico. 
And I was a city girl, thinking I had done everything. I thought I had had sex, but I hadn't. So I finally did do it after a guy had to explain what it was. A year later, during my sophomore year, I met a very nice guy, Michael Henry, who was on a football scholarship. When Mickey, I called him Mickey, didn't make the travel team, he was depressed. I felt bad, and since I had already had sex once, we did it! Aww. I didn't think about anything beyond that I liked a football player. And being from the Bronx, I had never seen anyone over five feet eight inches in my life. <laughs> They're taller out west. <laughs> a month later, I missed my period. I went to the doctor and found out I was pregnant. I don't think they even talked about birth control back then. I had just turned 19, and he was a year younger. This was 1963. There, was no, there were no legal abortions in the U.S., and I wasn't going to go to Juarez, you know? Girls then were going horseback riding to try to end their pregnancies. I had never heard of this. I didn't do that. I figured I made my bed, so I'm going to sleep in it. My third choice was moving to Amarillo. I'd never been there, but I was thinking I'd go and have the baby by myself. But instead, Mickey said, let's get married. He was a great guy. We ended up getting married the weekend John F. Kennedy was shot. Oh, wow. All that was on our TV during our honeymoon in a motel was the funeral, which set the tone. (laughs) Horrible start to a marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Tracy was born in 63, 64, probably 64. 64. Unsurprisingly, the marriage didn't work out. They were so young. So they divorced after three years. Michael moved to Colorado and he actually, he took uh, Tracy with him. She would summer with her mom who moved, moved to Los Angeles. And yeah, like Penny Marshall says that her like her mom wasn't mother of the year and she wasn't like mother of the month. Yeah. (laughs) Penny goes to Los Angeles where both Gary and Ronnie are already like set up. Gary's writing for TV and Ronnie was like a casting director or something. Okay. So her brother and sister in California, Mm -hmm. let me just go there and hang with them. Yeah. So the year was 1967 and her first gig in La La Land was in a head and shoulders commercial opposite Farrah Fawcett. No way. Seriously. (gasps) So Penny was supposed to be the stringy-haired girl the shampoo would, you know, protect you from becoming. And Farrah was the glowing representation of faithful brand loyalty, I guess, was the setup. Sure. So they had these two stand-ins who were present while, like, they were getting the lighting set up on the set. And the stand-ins were wearing placards. And so Penny Marshall's stand-in had one that said, Homely Girl. And Farrah Fawcett's had one that said, Pretty Girl. And Farrah noticed that this was making Penny really insecure. So she went over and crossed out homely and wrote plain. Aww. <laughs> like... Well, that was nice of Farrah Fawcett-ish. Ish. Good try. Good try. That was an A for effort. Wow. Good try. I've never heard that story. Yeah, it was... You're uh... just... You got surprises today. She's had a great life and she was so... Like, she just told stories so well. Like, it, it makes me think of how my grandfather would tell stories... She had that same sort of, like, just old school kind of vaudevillian, right? You know, like she came up in it. And anyway, so from humble beginnings, so in 2012, humble uh, or homely? Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> homely pie. So her memoir in 2012 is called "My Mother Was Nuts," and it describes this period of her life in like. Really, actually impressive detail that makes you nostalgic for your 20s. Like, everyone around her was just explicitly creative. They were all just trying to, like, figure out how to be the thing they knew they could be if everything, if all the cards fell right. Like, so... Those are your 20s. Yeah. 
So her, her brother and his writing partner were turning out scripts. They were making little movies. She temped for a while until she was paid $140 for saying a single word in a commercial. So she quit her job. A star is born. Went on unemployment and began auditioning full time and taking acting classes and doing all the. I mean, she'd been like her when she got to Hollywood, her brother was like, well, if you want to act, go take acting classes. That's, right. You know, part one, which is where she learned how funny she is. She's so funny. She's so funny. So there's sort of this, you know, just this bubbling ferment of of creative ambition playing out in, in this, like, young generation of up-and-comers. And so after acting class one night, she meets Rob Reiner, son of Carl, and they were just instant friends. Why wouldn't they be? Like, they literally grew up across the street from one another for Some the most from, part. Yeah. Penny on the block. And they uh-huh. just, they spent, yeah, Penny on the block. They spent, you know, these like lean, starving artist years just being friends and I think dating a bit and, but just like getting close to, just getting to know each other. So, I don't know. It's like a very normal story. Okay. Even though he was technically, by this point, like kind of royalty. He was another New York boy born in the Bronx on March 6th, 1947. And uh, later he was raised in New Rochelle after his dad, his mom is an actress as well. But after they started being successful... I think they went a little suburban. It's like yeah. a beach town sure. kind of thing. Anyway, so his mother is actress Estelle Reiner, who in When Harry Met Sally says, I'll have what she's having. Right. That's his mom. Yeah. Uh, although in 1940, oh, and his dad is notable famous person Carl Reiner. But in 1947, when Rob was born, Carl was 25 and decidedly not an elder statesman of comedy and the performing arts. Carl Reiner is still alive. Yeah. He's well into his 90s. Yes. Long life. Yeah. Apparently, when Rob was young and his parents were starving artists, yeah, they lived across the street from the Marshalls. But Penny is four years older. And as she said once, it's a very wide street. (laughs) (laughs) Never met. So after high school, he headed to L.A. to go to UCLA's film school. He took bit roles on TV. He was Steve Martin's writing partner for a while. On the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. They were the young, they were like the young writers. So they just paired him up and were like, go make, go make young people jokes, kids. I don't know. His big break came in 1971 when Norman Lear cast him as Michael Meathead Stivick, the liberal son-in-law of Archie Bunker on the smash hit All in the Family. This was the most watched television show in America for five solid years. For sure. And yeah, he was... Meathead. He was the voice of the counterculture. Yep. So Penny had actually auditioned for the role of his wife on the show, but Sally Struthers was cast. And that was okay, because if Penny Marshall wasn't to be his on-screen wife yet, their relationship and and his stature having advanced enough that he was ready to make her his wife in real life. Yeah. So they married in April of 1971 after the first season of All in the Family uh, had, I think it may even have wrapped by that point. And like, it wasn't, it didn't start out as a juggernaut. It wasn't like the first episode just was the biggest created hit. a storm. It, it grew. Yeah. So they get married in April. They go on their honeymoon. They come back and about a month later, the Emmys are held and all in the family wins a bunch of Emmys, including best comedy. So when she, like, then it became a smash hit. Like the first season was Interesting. a little. Yeah. Was, was not widely watched. And then Boom. Rob Reiner is about to be one of the most famous 20-somethings in America at the age of, like, 23 or 24. Unreal. Yeah. 
It was not fat times for Penny career-wise, but she was diligently supportive of her new husband, and she would usually come to the set and, like, do needlepoint. She said she, what, threw a rug? Is that the term for it? Like, like the wives would come and, like, sit somewhere and, like, watch what was happening, but do do their own thing. Do needlework or knit or okay. crosswords. Or I, whatever. Different times. Okay. Meanwhile, her brother Gary Marshall... I was so staggered by, like, his contributions to the American worldview of this era. It's so, I really, I had not pieced all this together. So Gary had taken the helm at The Odd Couple, which was another incredibly famous sitcom of the era, and an adaptation of a Neil Simon play. In the second season, the show kind of expanded. They, it had been a one-camera show they they made it a three camera show they brought in new characters just kind of enlarge the universe i think and make it maybe a little more dynamic so one of the new characters was a secretary named myrna and gary and one of the actors were like you know penny would be really really fantastic for this this part yeah but tony randall was one of the odd couple oh wow and he is apparently just a hyper perfectionist in real life so they were very concerned that he like, they needed to, to get him to sign on before they could cast anyone. Right. And I think they were nervous that, you know, that he would be like, well, we're not going to hire your sister. So they have Penny go to the set, and she just makes him laugh. <laughs> so, so she's in. She's in. Perfect. So she had this job for four years. And so now, like, the, the Reiner Marshall household is... A big deal. Like she's not like headlining the show, but she is working steadily on Consistent. a yeah on a popular sitcom. Yeah, for four years, it was a very busy, but it was a happy time. Her daughter Tracy, who had been living with her dad in Colorado, came to live with them, probably because there was a new baby sister. Oh wow! Okay, but Tracy said that she just preferred that in Los Angeles there were more television channels and the TV was in color. That I mean, that makes a difference at mm-hmm. the time to a Oh, yeah, kid. She, was, she was eight. And so Mickey, her dad, was like, yeah, you'll have better schools in L.A. And by the way, I guess now your mom is famous and married to a famous guy and they have a lot of money. And I think you're going to have opportunities out there that, you know, I'm probably not going to be able to give you here in Colorado. Colorado. There you so go. Later, uh, probably as a teenager, when she wanted to break into acting, Rob adopted her and she took his last name. So she is Tracy Reiner. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. And she's been in like 30 movies. So it was probably a super exciting time. Their house was ground zero for like the up and coming elites of comedy. Penny mentions in her book that a whole lot of marijuana got smoked in that house by really funny men telling funny stories, but also just ignoring any women who might be pr- uh, present. She was oh. like, you know, like I was allowed to talk. There was one other woman who was allowed to... But otherwise, like, if, if one of them brought a girl around, like, she was just expected to... It was like Gertrude Stein's salon. A little bit. All the wives hung out with Alice, like, in a different room, and it yeah. was the men were the focus and the yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. So some of the names that were prominent in this milieu, so Charles Grodin, Billy Crystal, Albert Brooks, who I think was one of Rob's uh, writing... I think uh, yeah. Richard Dreyfus. They'd gone to high school together, and Holy so they just, cats. yeah, it really... That's a spider webby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, Penny Star wasn't shining as brightly as Rob's, but she was continuing to work, and every role she took, she just nailed it, and 
like really just made everyone laugh. And so, you know, one thing led to the next thing. In November 1975, Gary Marshall, who created Happy Days, wrote an episode that cast Penny and an actress named Cindy Williams as Laverne DeFazio and Shirley Feeney for an episode called A Date with Fonzie. I remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so Laverne and Shirley were, from hey. the Wikipedia page on this, quote, a pair of wisecracking brewery workers. I tried to rewrite that, but you can't get better than that phrasing. That's okay. pretty good. So they were set up as dates for Fonzie and Richie, Henry Winkler and Ron Howard. Again, like, good Lord, the just talent and star power that was just like bopping around Los Angeles at the time. I know that city is always full of like immensely talented creatives, but this is really, anyway. Correctamundo. Yeah. The studio audience loved the Laverne and Shirley characters. And I guess back in the 70s, you could get a whole new scripted show up and running in just a few months. So, so like, this thing aired on, like, the 11th of November. January 27th, a couple months really? later, Laverne wow. and Shirley debuts on ABC, and it quickly became another iconic American sitcom. It was set in Milwaukee, and it followed the lives of two young women roommates working as bottle cappers at the Schatz Brewery, fictitious, in the late 1950s, which I guess is Gary Marshall's sweet spot, because Happy Days was a 50s sure. sitcom. and We're gonna make our dreams yep. come true. Oh my god, yeah. it's This has been fun. Dude. I love Laverne and Shirley. Too. Also, I had forgotten about Linny and Squiggy. Uh, Linny and Squiggy Michael, are the best. Michael McKean and David, yeah. David Lander played their upstairs neighbors, Linny and Squiggy. And they had developed these characters in college. So I guess Gary maybe saw them improving it one night and was like... Y'all are funny, yeah. Need you. Need you to be the upstairs. They would yell through the dumbwaiter. That mm -hmm. was how they communicated with their upstairs neighbors. Anyway. In, uh, in the early seasons, there continued to be crossover episodes with Happy Days. And again, in researching the story, I was just really struck by Gary Marshall's contribution to this like certain kind of like sweet, but also extremely limited and whitewashed American nostalgia in the mid-70s. I mean, these shows, like, I completely rem There was a block of Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley that would play, uh, like, during the day, I guess. Sure. And I remember as a kid just sitting there, like, loving all of it. Anyway. By its third season, Laverne and Shirley was the most watched show in America, which was probably incredibly awesome for Penny. But unfortunately, Rob's career was having an inverse moment. Oh, no. All in the family's peak years were behind it, and though it would run through 1979, he left the show in 78. Uh, he was indisputably meathead, but his moment as the center of L.A.'s comedy creatives was at least temporarily waning, and his wife was now like the queen. So it shift caused, in the dynamic yeah, there of were, the marriage. There were tensions, there was professional jealousy, and it, it ultimately undid the marriage. So for Rob, like, acting was not what he wanted his career to be about. He wanted to write and direct, and but he kind of got stuck with this, like, immensely popular character on this immensely popular show. So he felt really creatively bottled up for years. And I've also, there's some indication that he really, as a young man, was really felt oppressed by, like, the shadow of his father. That makes who, sense. Yeah, was Amago. super successful yeah. in the same industry. So it just seems like all of that kind of spilled over 
Um, they were married for a decade, so he's pushing 30 as they're kind of winding down. Like, it's, I, it, it kind of makes sense in terms of growing up and, you know, getting to a point you want to be in your career and all of that. So the arc of the love affair is about to yeah. go, go on the downhill slide. Yeah, like, I literally, I have seen zero, like, I haven't even been able to track down any headlines, like... Reiner Marshall divorce like I just don't think it made news I I do it did not appear to be trashy I'm sure that there was a period of time where they were not happy with each other but but like they remained friends and they were professional allies for the you know I mean she passed away last year but for the rest of their lives basically yeah they were always very friendly mm-hmm. with each other although I guess Rob Reiner's gonna live to be 130 based on his dad's More than longevity likely. so yeah um okay so they both transitioned from TV acting to film writing and directing, and both left an incredible mark in Hollywood. What year did they get divorced, did you say? 1981. Okay. So they, yeah, they married in 71, divorced in 81. So 10 years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And again, like, they were co- So let, Tracy Reiner, at this point, has dad in Colorado, dad in LA, mom in LA, like- Tracy Reiner sounds like she was probably one of the most loved children ever. Like, yeah. and all of her parents apparently co-parented very well. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, the whole, again, not trashy here on Tender Sweet Divorces. Tender, I love Tender Sweet Divorces. Mm-hmm. So Rob got into directing first, bringing the classic mockumentary, This is Spinal Tap to yeah. life in 1984. He's also responsible for The Princess Bride. Yeah. When Aww. Harry Met Sally, which was written by Nora Ephron, who we covered before. As you wish. Yeah, the movie. Oh, and Carrie Fisher was in When Harry oh. Met Sally as the sidekick, oh, remember? Sure. Yep, mm-hmm. yep, yep. Um, okay, so Misery, an adaptation of a Stephen King novel in 1990. Rob Reiner said he drew inspiration from the stagnation that he felt at All in the Family because the story is basically like a novelist is going to kill off his main character so he can go on and do different things. And, you know, he ends up horribly punished by Kathy Bates. Right. <laughs> so it's that fear that, like, if you try something new that your audience will reject it. Interesting. Yeah. He did A Few Good Men in 1992. And apparently uh, he saw this as the story of a young man with an overbearing father working out his daddy issues a little bit. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen it recently enough to understand uh, if that makes sense. But Okay. And Rob Reiner has continued to act in film and television over the years. Penny, meanwhile, had directed several episodes of Laverne and Shirley, as well as some other TV TV shows, stuff on TV. And one day in like 85, 86, her buddy Whoopi Goldberg calls her up and says, hey, I'm working on this movie, Jumpin' Jack Flash, and the director just dropped out. You should go pitch for it and oh. direct it. You should, you should direct my movie. And she did. And so this wasn't like the hit. That was a good movie, too. It it was. It was. It wasn't like the hit movie of the year, but it was a good movie. And it definitely made her a credible director. Oh, we're about to go down memory lane with her, aren't we? Are we going to talk about... Oh, oh, okay, go. So, 1988, Penny Marshall directs Tom Hanks in Big. 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 This was the first film directed by a woman to gross more than $100 million. Whoa. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. That was Penny Marshall. Colossal. Mm-hmm. In 1990, she directed Awakenings, Robin Williams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is based on an Oliver Sacks book about the effects of L-Dopa on people suffering from this mystery disease called encephalitis lethargica, which is real, 
and there is a terrifying and fascinating episode of this podcast will kill you about it. Really? That I highly recommend if you're into disease ecology or whatever. Okay. Okay. I know. I'm stalling. I'm stalling because in 1992, oh, Penny Marshall everybody's wrote... Everybody's favorite. ...and directed... Actually, I'm not sure. There's on. no crying in baseball. In 1992, Penny Marshall directed A League of Their Own. Yay! Which also crossed the $100 million threshold, making her the first woman director with two films to do so. Good on her. Yep. Other notable films, The Preacher's Wife with yeah. Denzel Washington and Whitney Houston. That's right. Another past subject. That came out in 96 and 01. She did Riding in Cars with Boys starring Drew Barrymore. Another. This is Spider. This is Trashy Divorce of Spider Web uh-huh, Central. Another subject. Yep. So that was actually the last feature film that she directed, but she kept acting and producing really until just a few years ago. And she died last December at the age of 75. And as noted, Tracy Reiner, the most loved child in California, has appeared in more than 30 films. And she is mother to five grandchildren to Mickey, Rob, and Penny. Like, wow. Just really, it is (laughs) hard to find any instance. Like, I literally have not found any instance of Penny saying anything bad about either of her ex-husbands or of them saying anything nasty about her. She seems to have had an effective co-parenting arrangement with Mickey. And she told Vulture in 2016 that when they broke up, she and Rob both expected that they'd get back together when they were older. He remarried in 1989 and has three children with photographer Michelle Singer, to whom he's still married to this day. Oh, wow. Like, okay. Just trash free. she never free. remarried. No, she dated Art Garfunkel for a bit no in the way. 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he credits her with helping him through a period of depression. No one says anything bad about her. She has no enemies, as far as I can tell. I don't think Carrie Fisher has enemies either, which is makes sense why they were such good friends. Yeah, so like there was another interview where this was so fucked up. So she's making awakenings. Rob Reiner is making misery. They're divorced. And the studios just, I think, coincidentally picked the same weekend to release those two movies. And she calls Rob up and she's like, hey, quick question. You don't want to be looking at your ticket sales numbers the same weekend I'm looking at my ticket sales numbers and be in competition, do you? And so they they talked to the studios and got the dates moved. Really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So it's like they could have been really competitive with each other, but they they weren't. weren't. Or at least later, like after they were married, they weren't. I think during the marriage, there was that element. I love tender divorces. Yeah. Yeah. It's a wonderful story. So... I don't think there are any trash cans to... Del- I think all of them get... I think Mickey, Rob, and Penny all get halos. Perfect. A hundred million halos. Twice. <laughs> Nine innings worth of halos. <laughs> that was... Thanks. That There's was a great no story. crying in Penny Marshall's Trashy Divorces episode. <laughs> I love it. Penny on the block. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I got the audiobook of her um, memoir to listen to in full because I could only read parts of it on Google Books. So the gem's going to be very pleasant. Next week, it's read by the author. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. All right, let's take a quick break. Let's take a break. Come on back for some hearts and bones. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I can't wait. I love this episode. I lo- it- Making our dreams come true. All right, we'll be right for back. For me and you. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new podcast called Pi, People, Influences, and Experiences. Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know you at a deeper level, the who, what, when, where, and why you are 
rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting if they have kids, what shapes their marriages if they're married. We just want to be really nosy. We want to get in there. A deep dive into nature and nurture. And we started it because there are a lot of people that we don't know that we are curious about. Right. And I have no friends, so for me, it's, you know. Trying like, to get them out of the house. Listen to it on whatever you listen to <laughs> podcasts on. Yeah, podcast, your, your, homecasts. Your, 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 your podcasting apparatus. Watch it on the YouTube. He's aging himself. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. Alicia, you have one of my very favorite people ever. 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 She honest and generous and warm and funny and razor sharp wit. I considered arm wrestling you for her story and you could have had Penny Marshall, but I was like, you know what? I love Penny Marshall. This will do. This really, it's a, it's a spider webby. Well, and, and they, and they were amazing friends their they, whole, whole lives, basically. From seventy late seventies on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this week, I'm weaving the trashy divorce of Carrie Fisher and Paul Simon. What? The title of the story, mm-hmm. and I would have fought you over this because the title of this story is Hearts and Bones. Mm, yes, you, you would have. You would have won the arm wrestling match. Song by Paul Simon, written in 1983, or released on his Hearts and Bones album in 1983. Carrie Fisher has said. If you have a chance to have Paul Simon write a love song about you, do it. He's brilliant at it. (laughs) So these two are actually together from 1977 to about 1989, but they were only married one year in the middle of that. Whoa. Okay. That's unexpected. Okay. Quickly divorced the following summer. So even when the divorce is done, they spend another five to six years trying to work it out before finally calling it quits. Hmm. It's a fascinating romance. Star-crossed Libra lovers. She's a Libra, so is he. There's addiction, mental illness, a Hollywood backstory, incomprehensible levels of fame, some inferiority complexes, some imago going on. Like, this story has everything. Oh, that's right, because she's from a big Hollywood... So, yeah, okay. This, I, all of this is the same story. It's so exciting. <laughs> okay, so there are two trashy divorces repetitions in this one. One... Little one of the classics, you can't change him. Right. The flip side of that is he's not going to change you. Yeah. Right. Like, kind of look at it from both of those angles. And this is a new one that we're going to introduce. Getting married is not going to fix the problems that you have hmm. as a couple. Interesting. We've seen this happen. Mm, we have with couples. Things are super shitty between us. Getting uh, married. Let's throw a wedding. We'll totally solve the problem. Okay. So let's talk about Carrie Fisher. Mm-hmm. She appears in the LA Times even before she's born. She's born October 21st. Happy birthday, Carrie Fisher, in the heavenly realm in which I am certain you reside in. Carrie's parents are Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher. 
You can hear all about this trashy divorce back in season season one. Carrie's their firstborn child. She's still really young when old daddy, Eddie, leaves Debbie for Elizabeth Elizabeth Taylor. Taylor. You can hear that story as well Uh in season two. With Erica Kelly from Southern Fried True Crime. As a child, she's always watchful. Uh, She's a watchful, critical presence. Lucille Ball comes over and says, is Carrie mad at me? Like Carrie was three. She was an intense kid. Hmm. Okay. Charles Wessler, who's a director of music video production at MCA at the time and a friend of hers since childhood, says about her, she raises your level and your brain starts to work harder, faster, better. It's like an adrenaline rush. You have to join in or just go home. Griffin Dunn, who rooms with her when they are teenagers, says the same thing. She raises the riff factor. You become shtick masters. No wonder they were such good friends, she and Penny Marshall. Yeah. Lauren Bacall says about her, she describes Carrie Fisher as the most extraordinary feminine brain I've ever come across. Huh. It's fascinating. So Carrie grows up in this world that is totally weird, but not weird at all to her because she doesn't know anything else. Right. Rarified world. Books become her best friends. She finds magic in the words, in the narratives. This is totally going to come into play later in her life. Otherwise, she's hanging out in this Hollywood world with Debbie Reynolds being your mom and Eddie Fisher being your dad and Elizabeth Taylor (laughs) being your stepmom, at least for a hot minute. Yikes, yeah. Wow. Celebrity kids are your friends. Mm -hmm. I had not thought, like, Elizabeth Taylor as your stepmom. Mm Mm-hmm. Yikes. (laughs) (laughs) So Carrie Fisher in her memoir, Wishful Drinking, talks about... Debbie Reynolds, and says, she was so beautiful, and of course I dreamed of one day looking like her. It was then that I knew with the profound certainty of a 10-year-old that I would not be and was in no way now the beauty that my mother was. Hmm. I was clumsy looking and intensely awkward, insecure. I decided then I better develop something else. If I wasn't going to be pretty, maybe I could be funny or smart. Turns out, she gets both. Hmm. So, Debbie Reynolds does remarry after Eddie in a not at all very successful marriage. So now Carrie has step siblings too. She is super big buddies with Griffin Dunn, son of Dominic Dunn and Ellen Dunn. Carrie loses her virginity with him. Like, this is just too much pressure. Can we just get this over with? So it's not a big deal. Right. Carrie also is experimenting with drugs from the age of about 13. I'm sure she was putting on a lab coat and had safety glasses on. <laughs> totally how she experimented with drugs. Ear protection. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at 13, Carrie also joins Debbie's nightclub act. So Carrie Fisher can fucking sing, mm-hmm. too, which is a crazy thing. She gets her first movie appearance. She signs up with Debbie's agent that represented Debbie when Debbie first came to Hollywood. She gets her first gig in... A movie, Shampoo, in 1975 with Warren Beatty. A little bit extra here after this. She's auditioning for Star Wars, All Hail Princess Leia. Both Jodie Foster and Amy Irving were heavily in contention for the Princess Leia role. Are you kidding? Nope. Is that, that crazy? Is, it, it is, because I think of... That does not strike me as before it was made a desirable role like i'm surprised like it just occurred to me like oh my god debbie reynolds daughter was like saw this like weird sci-fi flick where they were gonna like make little models and like 
and thought that was a good career move. (laughs) No, she wants it. And she auditions and she doesn't hear back for a long time. So she thinks she's bombed it. Yeah. But not. She, of course, she's Princess Leia. And the thing was with Carrie, because Leia's described as being beautiful, Carrie was like, they're not giving me that part. I'm not. That's interesting. That's really interesting. So. Oh, and she was acting alongside uh, Henry Ford. uh, No, Harrison Ford. (laughs) Who turned down the meathead role on All in the Family because he couldn't deal with the Archie Bunker racism. Really? Yeah. Or the bigotry. Like, he just, he didn't want to, he didn't want that to be the setup. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, during the filming of Star Wars in 1976, Carrie and Harrison Ford carry on a hot and heavy affair. Wow. Like, three months, three-month affair. Harrison Ford, at the time, is currently married to his first wife. Yeah, we'll be dealing with him at some point. He's 33. Yeah. Married father of two. She's 19. Yikes. Okay. Before this, his last gig mm-hmm. was rebuilding the back deck and doing some home construction for Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn in Malibu. You're kidding now, me. He was a construction worker while he was like going and auditioning to be an actor. But but yeah. He rebuilt pretty much their entire back deck in their Malibu home. What's funny is that he is such an accident prone human that I would, wor- I would not hire him <laughs> to do work around the house. Joan Didion has some fun things to, I've <laughs> got to go back and revisit that. Okay. okay so Carrie and Moving Harrison, on, yeah. the romance does not last because, well, he's married and that starring role fascination thing ends when filming is done and Carrie's young and smart and fresh and the it girl in Hollywood. So I'm going to leave her on the depot there. We're going to talk about Paul Simon. He's born October 13th in 1941 in Newark. His father is a professor slash musician. He's a professor by day, musician by night. His mom is an elementary school teacher. He has just a New York Jewish childhood typical of the time. It's music and baseball and bicycles and stickball. Old Paul meets Art Garfunkel at the tender age of 11. Art is a Scorpio boy. So these two are going to tussle it out through the years. This is trashy divorces, not trashy songwriters, but that's an interesting story. So Marshall dated Garfunkel while Fisher was dating Simon. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I I didn't know Marshall and Art Garfunkel dated. So there you go. So these two are going to tussle it out, but mm-hmm. it all begins innocently enough when they're both cast in a school play of Alice in Wonderland in like sixth grade. Paul's already writing songs and Art is singing with him. They both really dig the Everly Brothers. They have some modest local success. They get on a few local, they get a few local records printed. They call themselves Tom and Jerry. Hmm. And they do this thing locally for a while, both throughout attending high school and college. They record a record. That first record does not do well. So it's like 64. So Paul's like, fuck this. I'm going to go to England. And he does. He hangs out in London with like Nick Drake, Sandy Denny, Jackson Frank, my man, Jackson Frank. Big shout out to Jackson Frank and Blues Run the Game. Such a good song. So he's in England hanging out, picking up all kinds of new musical influences. And the album back in America is starting to get some play. Sound of Silence, right? Like, whoa, it's a huge hit. So he comes back and I guess I have to work with Art Garfunkel now. He makes, Paul Simon makes a record in England, doesn't get released over here. He comes back, 
Paul, Simon and Garfunkel are about to blow up okay. and they stay huge for like the next, next six to seven years. Okay. But by 1970, with the release of, of Bridge Over Troubled Water, they're kind of done. Paul also in this period has his first marriage, Peggy, lasts from 1969 to 1975. Okay. There was a very serious lover that he met in England before this named Kathy. So Homeward Bound and America both mention Kathy. She comes back. They take this bus trip through America together. She's like, I don't want to have any part of <laughs> your fame. Like, I don't want to have a part of the crazy ride. Yeah. She goes yeah. back to England. No, that's anyway. a perfectly reasonable sort of calculation. So Kathy Bales, Peggy, next marriage done by 75. That relationship ends in divorce. And Paul's dating around. His last lady love before we connect Carrie and Paul in the Trashy Divorces Depot is Shelley Duvall. Wow. I know. Okay. So during the filming of Star Wars, Paul and Carrie meet. And you have to remember that she is the hot shit in Hollywood. And his solo career after busting with Art Garfunkel, he's hot shit too. I'm taking this from Paul Simon's biography. It's called Homeward Bound. So... 1977. Though she's being pursued by three other men, her attraction to Simon was instantaneous. Once they saw each other, no one else mattered to them. They quickly move in together into an apartment in New York City's Central Park West. Carrie says, I got involved with Paul fast. I met him in April, and by the summer, I was in Greece with him. <laughs> in Paul's biography, the author Carlin says, Carrie added velocity to Paul's life, a kind of wild energy that often set him alight and sometimes made him scream. Paul didn't want to have to deal with Carrie when she came pinballing home with Christ only knew what powders and pills sizzling inside her feverish skull. Then it would be her turn to crash back to earth, ashamed of her wild moods and indulgences, suddenly convinced she had neither the brains nor the maturity to keep up with her older genius boyfriend. Carlin does describe how Paul Simon's dislike of Fisher's drug use, uh, clearly, busy schedules, and Fisher's crazy habits result in talks of breaking up. So 77 to 79, they do break up in 79, but these two, like, cannot stay away from each other. So Carrie lands her role on Blues Brothers, falls in love with Dan Aykroyd, they are engaged. The Whoa. paperwork is done. The blood work is done. And she dumps Dan Aykroyd a few days before the wedding and gets back with Paul Simon. Yikes. Uh -huh. Yikes. They want to break up again, but they're like, ah, they talk about breaking up all the time and it just makes them sad. Breaking up is just too sad. So instead, let's get married. Let's get married. And it was such a happy prospect. They fell in love all over again. Well, and I think, that's you're doing a project together you know you're mm -hmm. planning a thing there are tasks there are to-do lists then once you're married like all the stuff that you were too busy to see is right back still right there the couple gets married august 18th 1983 in paul simon's apartment they're celebrating he's on tour the joy does not last very long because reality happens in the 
same problems mm-hmm. are just there waiting for yep. them where they left them before the wedding. Powders and pills sizzling through her skull. Yep. Yeah. They divorce on July 1st, 1984. They're not married a year. They're married like 10 months. Wow. So a few months after the divorce, they kind of begin talking to each other again, to dating, to living with each other again. Oh my God. I know. There had always been something perfect about them. When they were getting along, the way they huddled together, the way he grounded her, the way she could make him laugh so easily. He loved her with a desperation that could frighten him. Hmm. This author, Carlin, also adds the passion wasn't enough, of course, to fix their personal problems. Fisher went to rehab in the mid-1980s. She is suffering from severe manic depression. Paul Simon goes into therapy because of his own unhappiness. Carrie's depths were unimaginably deep. And Paul's were nothing to sneeze at either, so they clung to each other with a passion that could both soothe and abrade. Hmm. This is, okay. good writing. So, dated, married, divorced, still together. Yep. They go to the Amazon. Simon is recording what will be 1990s Rhythm of the Saints release. And they go visit a brujo, a spiritual healer in the Amazon who gives them some special tea made with leaves from a psychedelic mm-hmm. plant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And well, ayahuasca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the recipe is, of course, designed to clean their spirits. Yes. The brujo is singing, and Simon rests his head in Fisher's lap, and she says she has a vision. She describes feeling pinned beneath Paul's ever-spinning, ever-controlling brain, about the way he, like so many powerful men she knew, assumed his expertise and control over every situation. After this revelation, it's done. They leave Brazil. Fisher leaves Simon for good. This is the trashy end of their relationship. Carrie Fisher tells the New York Times in 2012, It was very painful to not be able to make it work. We had a good time together when we did. Yeah. Can I, props though, to, you know, the spiritual elder, uh, it sounds like, sounds like that drug experience really did get them to a place where they'd probably needed to get to. They got there. Yeah. This is, this is not what either, like, end it. Yeah. Carrie Fisher also has said, the bad thing about my relationship with Paul was that we were similar animals where there should have been a flower and a gardener, we were two flowers hmm. in the bright sun wilting. Hmm. So now you have your two Libras. They're both cardinal qualities. They want to make the list. Air signs. Like, this is... Ex- okay. Simon, on the other hand, well after his split from Carrie, says, theirs was a powerful love, and it still is. So now is a great time to talk about the song Hearts and Bones. Paul Simon did that song so right. It is the Trashy Divorces theme song. In the bridge of the song is probably the best representative lines of just so simply a relationship not working out. Like the essence of every breakup, I think, can be described in this this core. And tell me why. Why won't you love me for who I am where I am? He said, because that's not the way the world is, baby. This is how I love you, baby. Hmm. This is how I love you. So you have these, like, it's a 
beautiful song. And she's like, why can't you love me for who I am, where I am? That's not the way I love you. This is how I love you. And this is the. Right, right. This is every breakup ever. I can't change him. He can't change me. (sighs) Well, and people deserve to be loved the way they need to be loved. That's it. I mean, he's bummed after this. I'm sure they both are. Hearts and Bones comes out the song on his album Hearts and Bones, which is not well received. She's kind of bummed too. But I'm going to go ahead and read the next verse. And this is the aftermath of the relationship ending. And this whole song, the arc of a love affair. Like, what goes up must come down. Like, okay. So this is the this is the end, which <sighs> a few lines in here that are just amazing. One and one half wandering Jews return to their natural coasts to resume old acquaintances, step out occasionally and speculate who had been damaged the most. Hmm. Whoa. Uh, easy time will determine if these consolations will be their reward. The arc of a love affair waiting to be restored. You take two bodies and you twirl them into one, their hearts and their bones, and they won't come undone. So this is it's a trashy divorces theme song. Like this is how it all goes. But once you're married, like even if you're divorced, you take two bodies and you twirl them into one, their hearts and their bones, and they won't come undone. Like, ah. See, in my favorite trashy divorces, they do come undone. <laughs> Sometimes explosively. It's (laughs) such a beautiful, if you've not heard Hearts and Bones, do yourself a favor. Yeah, I think you have a much like higher class view of this podcast project than I do. (laughs) (laughs) So let's speculate who had been damaged the most. Sure. And determine if these consolations will be their reward. Carrie, of course, is still making films after the final breakup. Mm -hmm. She hits a bottom, like she goes to rehab in 85, in which she begins and writes postcards from the edge. What she says is not autobiographical. She continues to act. She becomes a script doctor, helping with movies like Hook, Sister Act, Hmm. and The Wedding Singer. Interesting. They bring her in for dialogue and sex scenes, women's Hmm. dialogue and sex scenes. Here's something I thought was really interesting. She script doctors for like probably like a decade and a half, and she most decidedly quits that job because, this is what she says, directors... And producers would bring her in and say, what would you do to the script? Right, right. And she'd have to pitch. Work on spec. Instead, yeah, just hiring her. Yeah. She would have to pitch it. She's like, fuck you. You're not getting my work for free. Yeah, every freelancer knows that feeling. It, pay me. Pay me for what I do. She does have a romance with a creative artist agency principal whose name is Brian Lord in the early 1990s. It goes well enough. Carrie really wants a kid. They have a child named Billy in mm-hmm. 1992. Yeah, she's on American Horror Story, I believe. Yeah, I think so. These days, yeah. Well, that turns out to be a bust when Brian Lord leaves Carrie for his new lover, who's a man. Mm. So gay boyfriend is probably difficult to hold on to. Once again, people deserve to be loved the way That's they exactly need to be right. loved. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry that Carrie Fisher keeps not getting that. But. Poor Carrie Fisher. It is. I thought they were married. I think I I did, too, because there's a joke about, like, I don't, here's how good my gaydar is. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think we were under that assumption. And in going through research, all upon Carrie Fisher's death, like, Paul Simon was her only husband. She never remarried. And I'm like, what? 
Apparently, they did not marry. They told everybody they were married. Oh, interesting. But it was never formally done. Gotcha. So, a little less paperwork when it came time for the trashy, almost divorce. Mm-hmm. Carrie proceeds to barrel through the next year's writing, going on Broadway, promoting causes with women's advocacy, animal rights, LGBT causes. And Fisher publicly discusses her diagnosis of bipolar disorder and her addictions to cocaine and prescription medication. She has acknowledged and said her drug use was a form of self-medication. She used Percodan to dial down the manic aspect of her bipolar disorder. She's even given names to her bipolar moods. Roy is the wild ride of the mood and Pam stands on the shore and sobs. Mm. Drugs make her feel normal. She tells Psychology Today in 2001. So dealing with drug addiction, bipolar disorder, like with such refreshing honesty. How is she coping? And these are my treatments. And she really did a lot to destigmatize mental illness, especially manic depression. There's a great quote where she's like, hey, you don't need to be ashamed. You're making it through. If, if you're if you're doing okay, you're doing great with this disease. She does receive electroconvulsive therapy about every six weeks for a super long time. It sort of just blows her brain up. Right. So she talks about like the answering machine message she has. Like, please leave me your details because if you talked to Carrie six weeks ago, I'm not going to remember. Yikes. Because it she loses that short-term right, memory. Right. That's not a that's not a common treatment today anymore, is it? I think it still can be. Yikes. It seems extreme, but she, I think, stopped receiving ECT 2004, I think is when she said she stopped. But it helps her at the time, and she really does become a role model with her honest and revealing truths about addiction, mental illness, and the treatment for that. Mm-hmm. Carrie does pass away on the morning of December 27th, 2016. No, it was awful. Her awful. Uh, yeah. Her daughter, Billy Lord, stated that Carrie battled drug addiction and mental illness her entire life and ultimately died of it. She was purposefully open in all of her work about the social stigmas surrounding these diseases. I know my mom, and she'd want her death to encourage people to be open about their struggles. Sadly, Debbie Reynolds, mm-hmm. who loved her daughter, Carrie, more than just about anything, passes away the next day. And the world is forever changed by these two women and all hail Carrie Fisher for all time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Paul. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, him. Yeah, him. The rest of him. <laughs> so, legit, I have a whole trashy tidbits this week about Paul and his music and how he appropriated it from everyone. Like, he's kind of a borrower Hmm. Maybe doesn't give the necessary credit to nice way to put it. Many musicians during his lifetime that he stole from. We're going to talk about all of that and the time he bullied Karen Carpenter as well. Yeah, which is unforgivable in my book. But this is trashy divorces and not trashy plagiarism with the subtitle of you might be a prick. (laughs) So stay tuned on Patreon for Thursday. Going to work all that out. Our friend Double E got me on the phone this week and talked to me about what a prick Paul Simon was. And I'm saving all of that for trashy tidbits. As for his love life, Paul meets Edie Brickell. Right. When she performs on Saturday night live in November of 1988, 
she notices him like standing by the camera and recalls, even though I'd performed the song hundreds of times in clubs, he made me forget how the song went when I looked at him. We can show the kids the tape and say, look, that's when we first laid eyes on each other. It's kind of sweet. Paul and Edie marry May 30th, 1992. They are going strong 27 years of a marriage. Have three kids between them. Don't they have a domestic violence incident? They might. We're going to talk about that. And okay. Paul Simon could be a prick on Trash Tidbits. Sure. Hey, people fight. They've been I together a long to time. I wanted to create a really nice loving narrative about Carrie Fisher. <laughs> that was my goal in Hearts right. and Bones. And it's a great love no, song. No, we'll tidbit it up this week on Patreon. <sighs> No, the way in which we bind ourselves to other people, I think it's never more important than now. And they had a fairly trashy thing happen, but the friendship yeah. with Penny and Carrie, yeah, the it, friendship and the sisterhood mm-hmm. endured, and that connection of a real friend is like nothing else. Yeah. So I'm giving Carrie Fisher galaxies full of halos. Okay. Galaxies. Okay. And Paul Simon? Solid. Like, this is a solid four out of five when it comes to trash. I mean, there's there's a lot going on, and it's sad. I mean, the two people really did try to love each other, and they won't come undone. Mm-hmm. Carrie also was very kind. Paul had a has a son from his first marriage, and Carrie was very influential in helping that kid during a lot of his struggles. So I'm just going to concentrate on her. She gets galaxies of halos. Yeah. I'm going to reserve right on Paul Simon for a minute until Trashy Tidbits. I'll unleash on there. It's fine. Yeah, they were they were just very involved in each other's families. And, and, and you know, they were weird modern families. But yeah. Yeah. So you're my best friend. That's the narrative I'm going to concentrate on. There you go. Is the long and enduring sisterhood friendship of Carrie Fisher and... Penny Marshall, which is how this whole episode started yep. many, many months ago. Yeah, with an assist from John McEnroe. Thanks, Johnny Mac. Don't ever change. <laughs> Don't ever change. All right. Well, that hey. is Trashy Divorces for the week. God, I will never not love Carrie Fisher. Like, till the day I die. That's it. All right. Well, what? two great stories of two amazing women mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. sorely missed in the world today. Mm-hmm. Very, very missed. Yeah. That's what I got. All right. Well, thank you. That was very good. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Don't forget Trashy Tidbits. Paul Simon is probably a prick coming for you on Thursday. We've got a side piece coming for you on Wednesday, as well as my bonus divorce. Oh, right, right, right. This week, which I'm pretty excited about. It's going to intersect with your trashy politics a little bit do you want to hear who i'm doing yeah the trashy divorces of aaron burr sir Sir. yep showtime so find us on patreon there thank you everybody for tuning in for the tender and sweet divorces (laughs) heartwarming divorces just another episode (laughs) keep it trashy y'all bye bye And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia, 
with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.